So we do pray that uh, the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts uh, will be acceptable to God in this moment. Um, could you all come a little closer? <laughs> I brush my teeth and everything this morning. I brush my teeth once a week, every Sunday morning. There we go. The folks at home, the folks are coming closer. You get really close to the TV now. So you can see all the special effects. So today is the middle day of the trifecta in my annual calendar. Yesterday was the birthday, the anniversary of the birth of Abraham Lincoln in 1809. Uh, today is the anniversary of my beloved wife Jerry's birth in 19. And uh, tomorrow is Valentine's Day. So it's a big, big weekend for me because, you know, I'm a real Lincoln nut and I'm a real Jerry nut and I'm a real love nut. So uh, yesterday, of course, Lincoln's birthday. One of my professors at the Boston University School of Theology liked to say that Abraham Lincoln, a politician, uh, was perhaps the greatest theologian produced on the North American continent. And he cited two particular examples uh, to support that thesis. One, uh, the Gettysburg Address, and secondly, his second inaugural address, which was given just a week uh, before his assassination, one week, one month into his second uh, term of office. In the Gettysburg Address, um, Lincoln ad addresses uh, what is the foundation of the nation? What is the founding document of America? Now, in his day, in the 19th century, the prevailing idea was that the Constitution was the founding document. And Lincoln, as a minority view, uh, contended that the Declaration of Independence was the founding document. And, in fact, most Americans today would agree that the basis of our government is articulated not in the Constitution, which is a conditional document which accommodates for and provides for the establishment of chattel slavery, its preservation, but is the declaration penned by Thomas Jefferson. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Now, of course, um, Jefferson meant all men, especially white men and only property white men, and in fact, at the time of the Declaration of Independence, only about 10% of the American men would have qualified for his definition. The franchise, in fact, in its earliest days was extended only to about 10% of men. And yet, Lincoln said, it is the principle of this equality of humanity, which is the proposition to which this nation is dedicated. The only nation on the face of the planet dedicated to a proposition, an ideal. Now, Lincoln was involved in this argument. And in those few words, 272, he remakes America's self-conception. That today, we agree that the principle articulated by Jefferson is truly the foundation of our national identity. In the same way, the Apostle Paul 
was trying to articulate in the earliest days of the Christian church, what is the foundational understanding of the Christian community? What is it that all things depend on, to which they look uh, for their root? Now, in the first uh, letter he wrote to the Corinthians in the 15th chapter, he's, invo he's involved in an extended um, meditation on the principle of resurrection and the power that's behind uh, that resurrection. Remember, for Paul, Christ does not rise from the dead. Christ is risen from the dead. He is raised by the power of God. He does not spring, spring spontaneously out of the grave, but rather it is God reaching into the grave that pulls Jesus out from death and into life. So he writes, now let me ask you something profound yet trembling. If you became believers because you trusted the proclamation that Christ is alive, that is to say has been raised from the dead, how can you let some people say that there really is no such thing as a resurrection? In the early, earliest days of the church, this wasn't entirely a settled question. If there is no resurrection, he says, well, then there's no living Christ. And face it, if there's no resurrection for Christ, everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors, everything you've staked your life on, smoke and mirrors. Not only that, but we would be guilty of telling you a string of barefaced lies about God. All the affidavits we have passed on to you verifying that God raised up Jesus. Sheer fabrications if there is no resurrection. So if corpses cannot be raised, then Christ wasn't, because he was indeed a corpse, dead. And if Christ was not raised, then all you're doing is wandering about in the dark, just as lost as ever. It's even worse for those who died hoping in Christ and the resurrection, because they're already in their graves. If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. But the truth is that Christ has been raised, the first in a long legacy of those who are about to leave their places of death. Amen. Now, what was it that raised Jesus from the dead? The hand of God. And the hand of God is the expression of agape. Two chapters earlier in his great hymn to love, Paul talks about the power of love, which is the creative force of the universe. This is not romantic love. This is not the appropriate inscription to find in a greeting card for Valentine's Day. In the Greek language, of course, there are a number of words for love. Storge, which means essentially mammalian love. The, the feeling that animals, mammals, have for each other one of the things that makes us mammals. Basic. Phileo. Brotherly or sisterly love. The love of equals. The love of people who share a common purpose and ideal. Who care for each other. In a reciprocal relationship. Eros. The love of romance. This is where you get the greeting cards, right? Okay. Physical love. And agape, which is above and beyond 
storge or phileo or eros, but is a, a love that's disinterested. That is to say, beyond self-interest, that loves for the sake of loving. In the letters of John, of course, this will be articulated in the phrase from first, the first letter of John, for God is love. And those who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. It's this agape love that reaches into the tomb and pulls Jesus out because of the nature of his unconditional regard for God and his unfailing, unflagging obedience that the will of God may be accomplished in his life to face up to the ravages and the mendacity of humanity and not striking back in a nonviolent response, resistance to the evil that prevailed and distorted his day and the people of his day. And so it's this agape love uh, to which Paul points. In the King James Version of the Bible, in the 13th chapter of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, instead of love, the translators in the 17th century, 1610, used the word charity. From the Latin, caritas. The Greek word in the original text was agape. The Vulgate version of the Bible, completed by Jerome in the 4th century, used Latin and translated agape as caritas, which in Latin meant essentially the same thing. But charity, the English version of caritas, by our own day, doesn't mean anything like agape. Charity is that which is given by a benefactor to those who are of low estate, right? Charity is distinct from justice. Justice is the system in which the rights of human beings are recognized, respected, fulfilled. Charity is when the high and the mighty, the powerful, who wield over others the forces of life and death, bestow upon them out of their benevolence that which they need. Charity and justice are distinct one from the other. And so faith, hope, charity in the King James Version abide, but the greatest of these is charity. No, the greatest of these is agape, and agape is the root of justice. Gandhi, of course, uh, began his career in South Africa, where as a lawyer who had been trained in London, having been raised in, in India, went to London, was trained as a lawyer, began his practice, and confronted there the beginning expressions of the system of apartheid, which would come to full flowering in the middle of the 20th century. And in his res resistance to the violence of apartheid, Gandhi recognized the power of satyagraha, this Hindu concept of the purity, the power of truth. 
and of love. And it's this, he said, that can overcome the evil that besets humanity, in that particular case, apartheid. Gandhi, you may know, was a correspondent with a whole host of people. He was well known, particularly once returned to India in his campaign to throw off uh, the British yoke, the British imperial yoke on, on the subcontinent. He wrote to Tolstoy. Tolstoy wrote to him. Right? One of the other people who came and studied with Gandhi uh, was Howard Thurman, the Baptist preacher who became the dean at the Marsh Chapel at the Boston University uh, School of Theology, my alma mater, uh, to which Martin Luther King would go in 1950 uh, to study for his doctorate, having been ordained as a Baptist preacher, the young man. And it was at, Mount, at, at Boston University, after hearing about King, about Satyagraha and Gandhi, after a speech by the president of Morehouse uh, College, dove into Gandhi's theology and developed the power of nonviolent resistance. He came up with a theory about the principles, how the principles of Satyagraha expressed in Christianity as agape could be brought to bear on the American system of racism. And then in 1952, newly minted PhD, he goes to uh, Montgomery, pastor of a little Baptist church where he expects to consider, continue his scholarly life in a quiet pastorate. And then one day, a seamstress refuses to sit in the seat assigned to her. Not a happenstance, not a random act, but a carefully calculated move uh, by which to resist the system of Jim Crow. And soon King becomes raised up as the leader, unbidden by himself, of the leader of an active nonviolent resistance to the power of evil. It's one of many turning points in the American journey towards the fulfillment of the American dream of human rights. So Rosa Parks begins a movement by which King has the opportunity to put into practice the theory that it articulated in his dissertation. And in 1958, four years after the bus boycott overturned that particular element of the system, he wrote an essay entitled, An Experiment in Love. Not an act of civil disobedience, not reflections on changing the social order, an experiment in love. And in that, reflecting on the Christian concept of agape, he wrote about the power articulated by Jesus, particularly in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Luke.
Now, Luke's gospel is the Sermon on the Plain. Now, I'm only about halfway through my sermon. I'm sorry. Uh, this reminds me of the experience of the young preacher assigned to a little pastorate in Vermont. And on the first day he arrived, only one dairy farmer showed up. And so the young preacher said to the old dairy farmer, well, what do you think? Do you think we should go ahead with the service? And the old dairy farmer said to the young preacher, well, you know, if I go out to feed my cows and only one cow shows up, my feeder. All right, said the young preacher. So he mounts the pulpit. They play the whole prelude, Frank, every note. They sing every hymn, five verses each. They do all the prayers. He reads all the scriptures. He preaches his sermon. An hour and a half later, comes down from the pulpit, goes to the back door of the church to welcome and to greet the young man, the old man who had worshipped with him. The young preacher said, well, what would you think? The old dairy farmer said, well, if I go out to feed one cow and she shows up, I don't dump the whole damn bale on top of her. <laughs> well, that's a good story. Unfortunately, I haven't learned yet the meaning of it. Maybe someday I will. So Jesus coming down from a mountain where it says he just spent the whole night in prayer. And then having chosen 12 apostles from the disciples, he stood on a plain surrounded by his disciples and he was soon joined by a huge congregation from all over Judea and Jerusalem, even the seaside towns of Tyre and Sidon. That is to say, Gentile towns, not Jewish towns. Everybody had come to hear him, be cured of their diseases, disturbed by the evil spirits. They were healed. Everyone touching him, so much energy surging from him, so many people healed. And he spoke, blessed are you when you've lost everything. God's kingdom is there for the finding. Blessed are you when you're ravenously hungry. Then you're ready for the messianic meal. You are blessed when your tears flow freely. For joy comes in the morning. Count yourself blessed every time someone cuts you down or throws you out. Every time someone smears you or besmirches your name to discredit me. What it means is that the truth that you are speaking have come too close for comfort. That the person who cut you down is uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Skip like a lamb if you like. Even though they don't like it, I do, for all heaven applauds and you know that you are in good company. For so they treated the prophets who came before me. But it's trouble ahead if you think that you have it made. What you have is all you're ever going to get. And it's trouble ahead if you are satisfied with yourself. For yourself will not satisfy you for long. And it's trouble ahead if you think life is all fun and games. For there is suffering to be met. And you are going to meet it. There's trouble ahead when you live for the approval of others, saying what flatters them, doing what indulges them. Popularity contests are not truth contests. 
Look how many scandal, scoundrel preachers have been approved. But your task is to be true, not popular. So I'm going to teach you who are ready to hear something, a truth. And I tell you this, love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, strikes you down, respond with supple moves of prayer for that person. If someone slaps you in the face, stand there and take it. If someone grabs your shirt, gift wrap your best coat and give them that as a present too. If someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the life that I have shown you. No more payback. No more. Live generously. Here is a simple rule of thumb. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you, and then grab the initiative and do it for them. If you love only the lovable, what do you want, a pat on the back? Run-of-the-mill sinners do that. If you only help those who will help you, what do you want, a medal? Garden-variety sinners do that. If you only give for what you hope to get out of it, do you think that's love? The stingiest of pawnbrokers will do that. I tell you, love your enemies. Help and give without expecting a return. You will never, I promise you, you will never regret it. Live out this God-created way of life, the way our father, our mother, our heavenly parent lives towards us generously and graciously, even when we are at our worst. And so be kind and loving, just as our father, our mother, our heavenly parent is kind and merciful. This is the agape love uh, that is the foundation of the movement begun by Reverend King. Nonviolence is not simply a matter of physical activity, wrote Gandhi and King. You cannot be truly nonviolent simply by re refraining from violent actions. You must be internally nonviolent. You cannot hate your enemy. You have to want the best for your enemy. You have to trust that your enemy can be converted. In fact, that's the power of active nonviolent resistance to evil. It exposes the evil for what it truly is, by which the perpetrator of that evil may be convicted and converted by recognizing what they're truly doing. When King preached at the funeral in 1963 for the little girls who were killed in the dynamite, dynamite attack in the church school of the Baptist church, he did not call for retribution against the segregationists, the segregationists, the white supremacists, who used dynamite to kill these little girls. He called on the congregation, he calls upon us to pray for the people who did this that they might see their evil ways and so be transformed. King said, 
When we respond to violence with more violence, we may win a temporary victory, but all we have done is create an ongoing cycle of bitterness. But when we respond to this evil with love, we have the possibility of creating the beloved community. That's what we're engaged in. This is a generational project. We're not going to finish this in our own lifetime. There are too many complications. There are too many elements. The system is too pernicious and entwined in the American system, in the American psyche, but it can only begin here, now, with you. Nonviolence is not for the cowardly. In fact, Gandhi said, in facing evil, if the only alternatives you have are cowardice and violence, use violence. This is Nonviolence is for the strong. This is why King's movement was so intent on training people to be engaged in these acts of civil disobedience. You had to be strong to resist, to march across the Pettus Bridge and not have a billy club in your back pocket ready to hit the police, but ready to face into the violence, thereby exposing it for what it is and calling a nation back to its rightful mind. Agape. Agape is something of the understanding, the creative, the redemptive goodwill for all people. It is a love that seeks nothing in return. It is the overflowing of love, what the theologians call the love of God working in the lives of humanity. And when we rise to love on this level, we begin to love all people, not because they're likable, Thank God, King wrote, that the Bible doesn't ask me to like the people who seek to kill me, but to love them because God loves them. If not us, who? If not now, when? If not here, where shall we begin this work? Let us begin it here, now, as the people of God. Amen.